This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Well, the push for democracy in Hong Kong has taken a more vocal turn in the last few days with the demonstrations that have shut down many businesses and banks. Tens of thousands of people in favor of a switch to a democratic rule instead of the control that China has had since the late 1990s have shown up in what China is calling illegal rallies. But it shows how important Hong Kong is to the global economy as well as China's within the growth that it has seen over the last couple of years. Jacques Delisle is a professor of law and professor of political science, as well as the director for the Center of East Asian Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. And we welcome to the show. We welcome you here into the studios. Great to have you in here. Thank you for having me, Dan. We don't have any deaths in these protests, which is obviously a lot of people have talked about the, the relationship or correlation between what's happening now in Tiananmen Square, uh, obviously several years ago. But these protesters are not they're not going away and, and they want change. So I guess the biggest question is, will they get it? How do they get it? Or can they get it? Well, I think that's really the tough question. Uh, these are students uh, largely and, and other people, too, who've shown up to push for democracy. They're yeah. clearly upset about the decision that came down from Beijing late in the summer that said that the chief executive, essentially the governor of Hong Kong, would be elected by universal suffrage as yeah. promised in the arrangements that China adopted 20 years ago when it took back Hong Kong. Uh, but the question is, how do you get the candidates uh, for that slate? And yeah. the decision was that there would only be two or three candidates and they would be vetted by a committee of 1,200 who are pretty reliably pro-Beijing. So that's what the complaint is about, people who want to see Hong Kong go democratic. So the anger is there. Uh, are they going to get what they want? Well, so far the signs are not encouraging. Yeah. Uh, they're certainly not going to get a complete reversal from Beijing that would uh, reverse that decision at the end of August. That's the kind of climb down that it would be very hard to imagine the authorities taking. Yeah. The question is whether they get something short of that. And there are some possibilities on that front. And obviously Beijing and, and China have had a, a certain set of standards for for hundreds and hundreds of years. And, and as you mentioned, that's that's not something that can you know turn with the snap of your finger. That's right. Uh, I think you know, the question is, what kind of uh, of opening might there be for a climb down yeah. if Beijing chooses to take that route, if the yeah. government in Hong Kong sees no better way out and can give, convince Beijing to allow that? So you could see something like a uh, broadening of the range of candidates who will be put on to that slate. So there's mm -hmm. some talk, there has been some talk before the protests even, of putting together a slate of two or three people that would include a pro-Democrat, perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea is, in the announcement, Beijing made in August, to be on that general election slate for universal suffrage, you have to get a majority of the votes on that on that relatively pro-Beijing committee of 1,200. Mm -hmm. If you put together a slate that's mixed, that might uh, allay some of the concerns. But it's hard to make that promise now. That's a process that can't happen for a while. The protesters have also now started calling for the uh, for the removal or the resignation of the chief executive, the yeah. current chief executive, the person who is up for re-election, in effect, in 2017, sure. uh, calling for him to resign uh, because of, of the way uh, this turn toward democracy has not happened the way the protesters want. Now, uh, part of this goes back to when uh, Britain gave up its control of Hong Kong and China uh, took over. And uh, I was reading an article that uh, talked about 
the basic law, which basically oversees what what uh, what rule happens in Hong Kong. And one of the uh, the lines in the article I, I I highlighted because it talked about uh, Lu Ping, who was China's then top official on Hong Kong. His co- his comment: How Hong Kong develop develops its democracy in the future is completely within the sphere of the autonomy of Hong Kong. Now, this is a line which you read that and you say, okay, Hong Kong gets to call its shot and and understand how it all plays out. But it seems like China is kind of trying to reword that and say that was not his intent. It's a, it's a very complicated structure that was put in place. I mean, the basic promise for Hong Kong under the agreement that the British and the Chinese negotiated way back in 1984 was that Hong Kong would be promised an extended period, at least 50 years, uh, in which it would be a one country, two systems arrangement. Yeah. And that was meant to be a promise both of autonomy and continuity. Well, that worked fine for a few years, but yeah. as you get 15, 20, 30 years out, autonomy and continuity can pull in very different directions. Sure. Uh, and so keeping things the way it was, which was a pretty tame, not terribly democratic arrangement, uh, that clashes with this idea of the autonomy of Hong Kong to set its own path. And there were promises built into the basic law, and the basic law is kind of a mini constitution for Hong Kong. It's, it's passed by the Chinese national legislature, but it governs Hong Kong, and Hong Kongers cannot change those sure. rules. And it does promise progress toward democracy. The usual phrase was uh, gradual and orderly progress. Yeah. Um, and that's been a subject of much debate <laughs> in Hong Kong. And indeed, 10 years ago, we had a similar uh, issue about democratization where the National People's Congress, the legislature in China, its standing committee, which has the authority to interpret the basic law, said, no, we're not going to accept the, the quick leap to democratization that the people in Hong Kong, some were then pushing yeah. for. Uh, we just don't interpret the basic law that way. But this time they have a deadline. So there has to be a rule for the 2017 elections, sure. and that was promised to be universal suffrage. And so that's why Lu Ping's promise of setting your own course comes forth. Now, there's a technical way, a technical uh, feature in which this is set by Hong Kong in that everybody expects that the bill for the elections that the, that the chief executive will introduce to the legislature mm-hmm. is going to track what Beijing said. But the election law has to be passed by the legislature. And if one-third of the legislature plus opposes it, the law doesn't pass. And that's part of what these protests are about, is trying to stiffen the backbone, as it were, of the moderate moderate Democrats. The way Hong Kong's legislature is set up is some seats are are elected the way we'd recognize them, you know, Mm -hmm. districts where the populace votes. But some seats are held by representatives of so-called functional constituencies. You know, the big banks, various sectors of the economy, the insurance companies, that sort of thing. And that's the people who will, by and large, make up that group of 1,200 who do the nominating of candidates. Okay. So what you've got is is because a lot of the democratically elected representatives are in the pro-democracy camp or the pan-democrat camp, they get over the one-third threshold. So if they hold together, they can stop that legislation, and then you get this constitutional crisis of what are the rules for the next CE election. So that's a lot of what the students are focused on. But obviously there's a concern that 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 group, that pro-democratic group, will not have the backbone that we're talking about here, will slough off, and that one-third number will fall below that threshold, and uh, you won't get that that potential to see that that erased, correct? Exactly, and that's part of the, the rather odd-looking political discourse you see going on uh, among official media and officials in, in Hong Kong, yeah. in that one of the games is to say, look, Hong Kong, 
all you're going to get from Beijing is what Beijing's offering now. Yeah. That will at least give you universal suffrage. You all get to vote even on a very restricted slate of candidates. Sure. But that opens the door. That's the thin edge of the wedge. The next time out, we can have broader nominations, but universal suffrage will be in place. So half a loaf better than none, you can build on sure, this. Sure, yeah. Versus the view that says, look, this is a moment when we really can push, where we've got to show that we're going to push for democracy. And that's the mentality among a lot of the a lot of the protesters. Now, of course, the view in Beijing has always been Hong Kong is an economic city, not a political city. That's been the mantra. <laughs> exactly, yes. As long as it's stable, orderly, yeah. and the incomes keep rising, everybody's going to be happy. Stock market does well, that sort yeah. of thing. Um, the question that's on the table now is, is that starting to crack? Uh, clearly, there are more energized people out in the street on a political issue than you typically would have seen in the past. But it's hard to read that essentially silent majority in Hong Kong. And so what you see is from the the leadership in the in the government in Hong Kong, C.Y. Leung, the chief executive, and others, and from Beijing, playing a card that says, if this goes on, it will be disorder. Disorder is bad. Mm -hmm. The economy will come apart. Uh, you should you should you should go back to your homes and not disrupt the good thing we have going here. And by the way, your protests are illegal. And yeah. so they sort of play to that law and order card, that that stability card that that has been very powerful in Hong Kong. It, it's interesting because, as you mentioned, it has for the longest time Hong Kong has been just basically a, an economic area a, and when you look about uh, when you look at its positioning in terms of china it basically is a it's a huge avenue to be able to move product into china and out of china a, and it has been i mean that's probably the the most important reason why china wanted to get into the relationship it did back you know in the in the 80s and 90s to be able to have that venue, to be able to kind of open its door to the West. Yeah, it's product and it's capital. I mean, the yeah. front offices for a lot of the investment that goes into China, a lot of the regional headquarters still remain in Hong Kong, although it's shifted some. But that, yeah, that's its role. Yeah. Um, and the interesting thing about what's going on now is, much as this is a political issue, and it very much is, it's a sure. question of democracy and identity and a younger generation that's grown up with certain expectations, there is an economic piece of this. On the one side, as we've already talked about, there is playing the fear that this will harm the economy card. Mm -hmm. You know, they are, the, the, the protesters are occupying the business district. It's clearly gumming things up. The yep. stock market's down, I think, about 3% in the two days, uh, the two trading days uh, that the protests have been going on. On the other hand, there is this economic element in that some of the people who are most vocal and most upset about the lack of democracy are people who are genuinely just generally discontented. Mm -hmm. That includes a lot of 20-somethings who are out of college but having a hard time finding jobs. Sure. Hong Kong's economy is doing well, but it's not as robust as it has been. And there are a lot of mainlanders who've come into Hong Kong. Relations are not good. There's a sense that they're taking some of those jobs. There have been social frictions. Uh, so the sort of resentment against the mainland uh, and, its, and its perceived encroachment on the Hong Kong way yeah. is a big, uh, big part of it. The other interesting thing this time is the business community, the big business community, has has generally been pretty quiet, uh, and to the extent it's been vocal, it's been pro-Beijing. That's been the story, you know, keep the order, keep the good times rolling. Sure. The tycoons were very much in line with the kind of chief executives that uh, Beijing was favoring for Hong Kong. But this time out, you've seen a little bit of a crack. Uh, yeah. In the run-up to that decision at the end of August, you saw some of the business community saying, don't worry, it's not going to mess up the, the economy. We can, we can, we can take we some protests. Yeah, yeah. It'll, it'll be okay. And now you see some business leaders calling for dialogue between the government and the protesters, which the government has refused. And, and that's interesting because of the fact that, uh, you know, we've only been a couple of days at this, yet, as you mentioned, there's a lot of banks that are shut down. Uh, the schools uh, are, are affected on this as well. And I guess the question is, how long would the Hong Kong government wait or would they call in and, and ask for any assistance from the Chinese government in terms of dispersing 
all of these protesters. I mean, police are out there. They're using tear gas, but they haven't added a military aspect to this at this point, and I don't think they want to. Yeah, that's one of those areas where I'm really gr- glad I'm not C.Y. Leung. I mean, he's yeah. got a very tough position because, I mean, I think there is still some hope that the protests will you know, peter out uh, peacefully or they'll make their point and, and, and move on at some point and not keep the long-term disruption. And the protesters have been attuned to that. They're, so there are things like reports today that they've been negotiating uh, channels to allow emergency vehicles through because one sure. of the complaints is they're disrupting that and it's hurting people. So they don't want to appear disorderly. Uh, but they've rejected the calls uh, to uh, to go home. So I think it's genuinely tough. The first move by the police authorities in Hong Kong was to take the first step up the ladder of escalation. I yeah. mean, they, they did pepper spray, tear gas, batons, there were reports of, of somewhat more uh, violent acts, but certainly people being injured. That didn't work. The protesters came back, they regrouped. And then the question was, do you take the next step? And so far they haven't. Um, you can imagine the protests going on long enough that they'll feel compelled to do that. Yeah. Uh, you can imagine situations, since this is not a tightly led protest, I mean, lying behind this is a group called Occupy Central with Love and Peace and a couple of other groups mm-hmm. that are, you know, by and large, put together by intellectuals, university professors taking the lead in Hong yeah. Kong. Um, but now the student groups have kind of gotten out in front of them. So it's, it's, it's more diffuse. It's less controlled. Mm-hmm. So the chances that somebody is going to you know, attack a cop or something or that a cop is going to go rogue, these are not impossible. And that becomes the bad scenario. What they don't want to do is, try, is ever call in China. That conjures yeah. up the June 4th vision. That would so delegitimate the regime in Hong Kong. It would be a terrible black eye. Uh, and I got to think that wary as people in Beijing, as the authorities in Beijing are about what's going on in Hong Kong, they understand that that would be really crossing a Rubicon. It's interesting, though, the, the the dynamic that you have between China and Hong Kong, considering the fact that, as we mentioned, Hong Kong has been such an economic force, you know, over the years. And China, within the last couple of years, you've seen uh, amazing growth in, in terms of their economic model over the last couple of years. And the one is really, they are dependent upon each other. And it's a hard relationship to see getting changed as you mentioned, because of the fact that it has been so good, especially over the last couple of years. It's been very good for both. It's been very good for both for a long time. I mean, yeah. <clears throat> one of the uh, the reasons for the promise uh, in 97, a promise made back in 84 with the, the treaty with Britain and then implemented in 97 and since, is that this is a valuable arrangement for China and it's a viable arrangement for Hong Kong. Yeah. Uh, the concern is, is this still proving viable? I mean, to some extent, Hong Kong is less important to China than it used to be. China's much more open, much more affluent. Uh, Some of what Hong Kong did is now done in Shanghai and can be done from other places, but it's still quite valuable. Um, to China, and and it certainly has a reputational effect for China if they muck around in, in Hong Kong in a way that the world takes notice of and, and rejects. And the question is how well the arrangement works for Hong Kong. Hong Kong sure. is now economically more dependent on China than it was in the past, but there's this chafing at the failure to deliver on what are seen as promises of democracy and a sense that maybe some of the things that made Hong Kong special are eroding. Yeah. Uh, the degree of, of, of true uh, freedom of, of speech, not that anybody's being thrown in jail, but there's a certain chilling effect on sure. on media, which have to worry about the relationship with big business and that. So it's it's a very much more complex and ambivalent situation. And that's part that's been part of the formula for China o- over the years is that that control over the media, and now you're starting to see it in Hong Kong with some of the you know the networks that have been shut down or basically blacked out 
temporarily while these protests are going on. Well, it's a matter of reaching China. So, yes, yeah. g getting the news out of Hong Kong and into the mainland, there have been the usual efforts to block. Now, those, of course, are far, far less effective than they used to be. Sure. Uh, the social media, um, you know, sort of peer-to-peer uh, -peer sharing is now has bypassed a but, lot. And in Hong Kong, there's not, you know, Hong Kong still has a free media. The question yeah. is sort of how, how yeasty and vibrant is that culture? Yeah. You know, is there some corrosion of the rule of law? There's no... Uh, you know, heavy-handed fist of control. It's a it's a sense of a slow erosion, a slow corrosion of the things that made Hong Kong special. So, if we get to the 2017 election and we're still looking at the same type of setup for the government, uh, is it realistic to say that sometime in, in, within the decade after that, that we may slowly see a, a change in terms of Hong Kong, or? Would it go all the way out to the original agreement, I guess, carries out to, what, 2047? Uh, would it be that long where we could would have to wait to potentially see a change? I think it's it's hard to project these kinds of things uh, that far out. Yeah. Uh, one of the arguments that's made in favor of Hong Kong's acquiescing in Beijing's decision is it at least puts that principle of universal suffrage in place, and that'll be in Hong Kong law, and then you can sort of push at the edges yeah. to expand the range of nominees and such. Um, you know, I think the current leadership in China, the Xi Jinping fifth generation group of leaders, you know, they're still fairly newly in office, but everything we've seen in their first couple of years is they're not real fans of this kind of change. Yeah. Uh, they've been pretty repressive on this kind of issue at home. They clearly don't like what's going on in Hong Kong. We've even seen these sort of paranoid references to outside forces in the United States or Britain, anti-China <laughs> forces being the black hand behind this democracy stuff. And that's really reminiscent of the bad old days, you know, the, the panic of 1989. Yeah. Um, and this is just not a regime that has, has had much tolerance for that. We're talking with, uh, we're talking with Pro uh, Professor Jacques Delisle, who is a University of Pennsylvania professor uh, in law and political science. He's also director for the Center of East Asian Studies here at Penn. Uh, great to have him in the studio. We're talking about Hong Kong. If you have a comment, one eight four four Wharton, one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six is the number. As uh, we're talking about the situation that's going on in Hong Kong right now, and also the financial aspect to this, because of the fact that Hong Kong has been such a a, a strong financial area for quite some time, China obviously has been, uh, especially in the last few years, really picking up the pace with their ec economy. But uh, it does uh, highlight the interesting relationship that the two have and the relationship upon one another uh, that they do have. You mentioned about the dependence that, that Hong Kong seemingly it continues to grow has on China. What kind of levels are we talking about here? Well, I mean, it depends on how you measure it. But if you look at... Um you know, the dominance of the sort of prominence of China as, as the economic engine of that region, everybody along the periphery is, is pretty deeply engaged. Yeah. Uh, you know, China has uh, what's called a SIPA, a Closer Economic, or Close Economic Partnership Agreement uh, yeah. with, with Hong Kong, which is you know, kind of a mini free trade area. Uh, there's huge amounts of traffic across the border. Um, you know, there really is this integration between sort of front office things in Hong Kong and manufacturing that's done in, in Guangdong just across the border. Uh, a lot of the financial services that are provided in Hong Kong, which is you know, home to major banks, uh, all the investment houses have places there. All the law firms uh, operate there too. Mm -hmm. So that's where a lot of this work is done that is targeted at the China market. I mean, Hong Kong is you know, truly a regional center as well, but because of its proximity to China, because of its close ec economic integration with China, um, and because of 
the obvious sort of uh, you know, cultural and often individual links, uh, it's, it's still very, very much part of that. If you were to take away the Chinese economy tomorrow, you know, Hong Kong wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They, then they would have to find somebody else to be able to be, I guess, reliant on to be able to, to keep themselves up and running. Yeah. And they've tried to diversify. I mean, and Hong Kong does, you know, focus, does function as a center for economic activity in the region more generally. But, you know, there are a lot of a lot of entities out there that can play some of that role. Singapore does a lot in its region. Shanghai has become more important for a good part of China. Mm -hmm. But the pie has expanded so rapidly that Hong Kong can still do and has done quite well. So then what's the, really the next step that, that we're going to see here? I mean, obviously, we have the, the, the protests going on right now. Those still obviously are going to play out here for the next little while. The hope, as we mentioned, from the Hong Kong government is that this is going to disperse at some point and go away. But realistically, what is the next step that we that we will see? I think in the very near term, uh, October 1st is China's National Day. It's a holiday in Hong Kong. And that was the initially targeted day for the big protests back when this seemed to be a more kind of controlled and led uh, movement. And what mm -hmm. happens is the protesters sort of got out ahead of the organizers who then said, OK, we'll pile on to that. But the question with Occupy always has been, what happens, right? Yeah. I mean, you can't really stay there forever. No. Um, uh, and it's hard to imagine a situation where you get a lot of negotiation on the fundamentals. So the options really are a climb down, which is possible, the, the, that uh, the, the government will make some concessions. Yeah. Uh, and you could, you know, it's not clear to me that C.Y. Leung, the chief executive, is going to survive this. I mean, sure. He's, he's in a very tough place and I think is, uh, has not played his hand all that well. That might be enough. Um, it could be that they will declare that they've made their point and then withdraw. And what we will see is a focus on the next real decision point, which is this law that will have to be adopted to govern the next elections and what yeah. will happen in the legislature with that. The worst scenario is that violence breaks out, whether on the police side or the protester side, and it escalates up. I think there's a lot of um, will and intent not to let that happen mm -hmm. on both sides. Sure. You see the interviews with the protesters, the interviews with the chief of police in Hong Kong. There's a real desire to avoid that, but there's a realization that it could happen. Yeah. Um, the nightmare, the real nightmare scenario is if Beijing deems things in Hong Kong to be getting so out of hand that they need to restore order, then you start yeah. talking about the possibility of the PLA, the People's Liberation Army. That's a, that I think is very unlikely. That would be uh, that would be really quite catastrophic. The real problem is, you know, when you launch a protest movement and you're making demands that are not going to be accepted yeah. in whole cloth, and when the other side isn't yet willing to negotiate with you, what happens? Um, is negotiation enough? Is a symbolic resignation enough? Is a problem promise to reconsider? Yeah. You know, what counts as enough, especially since you don't necessarily have a unified position on the protester side? And, and I guess at this point, then, if if there was something that came from the Hong Kong government that said that there would be talks, I guess, at this point uh, about, you know, whatever going forward, then at least that's maybe a way to kind of ease things down a little bit and the protesters to go home and, and life to get back to normal, at least for right now in Hong Kong. Yeah. And I think there's, um, you know, there's, there's reason to hope that that might happen. I mean, I think the more reflective folks among the protesters know that it's unlikely you're going to be able to keep huge numbers out there for a very sure. long time. Yeah. And that there is a big segment of public opinion in Hong Kong which doesn't like disorder, which doesn't like uh, things that cause inconvenience and could hurt the economy. And so if you can find some wiggle room out of that, um, I think it's possible to make some concessions, at least engage in negotiation. And again, one of the helpful structural features here is that there does have to be that discussion of the legislation to govern 
the 2017 election. That legislation will probably be taken up in the next several months. But that gives you something to say, we'll negotiate about that. Yeah. And it, there, it's not automatic that the bill that has to be submitted is exactly what Beijing said. And, you know, it's going to be a complicated negotiation, but there is some room for some concessions. There. But there is obviously there is a big economic aspect to this that that plays a, a very important role because of, of the way the economies have kind of gone, especially the last few years. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, clearly, they're deeply linked. Uh, clearly, yeah. uh, chi- as China's growth slows, there's a question of what that means for Hong Kong. I mean, it's doing well. It's doing sure. over 7%, but it was doing 10% not too long ago. Yeah. Um, and and uh, the mainland is better able to perform some of those services that Hong Kong traditionally has performed and sometimes do them for less. And ultimately, Hong Kong, like any system which is, you know, very much at the service end of capitalism, it's a place about confidence. It's a place about people wanting to be there, thinking the rule of law works, thinking it's a good place to live, you know, all those soft things that that may well matter. And so you see things like there was a Reuters report, I think, that L'Oreal had banned uh, travel, business travel of its people (laughs) to Hong Kong. Not clear whether that's worry about violence or just a sense that it's going to be darn hard to get downtown to the offices. Sure, yeah. Uh, But if that sort of thing starts building, then you start wondering about what that means for economic confidence. On the other hand, that kind of gesture really ticks a lot of people off as alarmist and potentially counterproductive. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, for one company to be worried about getting their employees down to the offices or whatever it might be, that is a little bit over the board. But you understand that that's part of the process that you've got right now, at least for the next few days. And and like you said, hopefully this this has a resolution here very, very soon. That's the hope. Yep. Thank you very much for coming in. Appreciate Thank, it. Thank you for having me. Great. Jacques Delisle, as we mentioned, professor of law and professor of political science here at the University of Pennsylvania, also director for the Center of East Asian Studies here at Penn as well. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.